The Film Comment Podcast from Sundance is sponsored by Autograph Collection Hotels. The Autograph Collection Indie Film Project supports independent film and celebrates the power of storytelling to inspire and connect people and places by leaving a lasting imprint. Autograph Collection Hotels, exactly like nothing else. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast, recording in Park City at the Sundance Film Festival. My name is Nick Rapold, I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment, and I'm joined by two talents tonight. First, as usual, we have... The Andy Richter of the Film Comment Podcast, Eric Hines, Curator of Film at Museum of the Moving Image and Film Comment Columnist. And then our very special guest, who has been filing uh, reports on the website that I hope you've been reading every single one of. April Wolf, who is a film critic. (laughs) (laughs) Not a fancy title, sorry. That means we have a bigger bucket of films to dip into and serve you. Film soup (laughs) tonight. Uh, What shall we start with? we guess we could start with the performance slash film. We thing. could. We could. Yeah, yeah. Sort of yeah. fresh in mind for me, certainly. Right. I think we saw two different performances. Oh, we did. Um, I saw the six. You saw the 830 of A Thousand Thoughts. The A Thousand Thoughts, directed or more like orchestrated and organized by Sam Green. Do you, do you have a capsule summary? Oh, I don't know if there can be one, but I guess I'll say um, that it's a piece um, about and collaboration with the Kronos Quartet. Um, and uh, it is a feature-length film um, that is uh, threaded together or is in conversation with uh, the actual Kronos Quartet. So the foursome are on stage performing uh, a lot of different pieces um, that are in concert with what uh, is being presented on the screen, but then also what Sam Green is talking about and and teasing out of kind of both sources um, from stage left that sound about right yeah that sounds right and it was in the egyptian theater which already has a kind of stage feel to it that's where they're located so it's not like they're in an aisle next to or surrounding you in theater seats although that might be another way to stage it (laughs) and they they do a lot of music in that venue so it 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 sort of makes sense in terms of yes yeah. yeah the film is kind of a biographical of the quartet documentary maybe you should talk about it first I'm going to just give the standard preamble that it's. I'm still gathering my thoughts, and I'm oh. not sure I'm going to be able to be the most articulate about this. And then um, he proceeds to be extremely articulate. <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, I, I, I was. It's hard not. I, I guess I'll go into some thoughts about it, but leading with uh, the fact that just on a simply, I was incredibly moved by it, though it's a piece ostensibly about the Kronos Quartet, I think it's actually as much a piece about Sam Green's project, um, which he's been working on for a decade and a half or so, which is the kind of opening up of the theater, the cinematic space to create theater alongside cinema or to create theater out of cinema. Um, And I think that he found, though I've liked a lot of his work and have have written about that, that work, this seems like kind of a culmination, kind of the, the, what he's been building toward for a long time. And I found that moving and thrilling because, again, it's not about him. 
and yet formally it feels like oh right you figured you, you figured this out and and it's charming it's light even though it's about people's lives and some tragic things that happen in their lives um but that kind of you know the, the, i think i've already used a couple synonyms for this already and and there's a bit of a cliche but i think it's actually literally true the the kind of dialogue between the performance and the screen um I, I was, um, it, it, it all clicked for me because it's, it's taking the documentary, which is something that is recording or presenting something that has existed before, um, and presenting it in a new creation that then gets presented in a theatrical space, but it's all, it's, it's, it's sort of present, but it's mostly about the past. And this is so very, very much about making the past and present live in the same space so that you have something that's been recorded on film, whether it's archival footage or new documentary footage or new music musicians playing in a film. And then people in the room kind of duetting with that or, or collaborating with that. And so that I, I just, I couldn't stop thinking about that and I couldn't stop being in that space. And, you know, Sam is talking about some of these things, talking about ephemerality, he's talking about time and draws attention to the time of the day when the piece begins and the time of the day when the piece ends. He's, he's, he's harnessing that. But yeah, so to me, there's just kind of, to me, it, it not only was there this, you know, um, concert of screen and performer and musician, but I felt like the entire space was kind of activated. And I felt like I was kicking myself because my mind was wandering and thinking about friends and thinking about the past and that kind of thing. And then I, that built to me, for me to a point of realizing that that's actually kind of what the piece needs to be as well. And so I, I found myself even more moved than by what was working about the piece. What really worked about the piece was that I, I felt enveloped uh, into the performance. That's the, some incoherent beginning no, thoughts. No, it's that's that's all that I I wanted to feel when I saw it. I mean, I I definitely in, in, uh, enjoyed it and um, you know loved the live music. I mean, it it's basically like a greatest hits of the Cronus Quartet. They're they're playing snippets from a number of pieces, and I, I feel like also in a kind of looser, more playful manner although I'm not a classical music critic, so maybe I'm wrong. The thing is, though, when Sam would, would talk about this idea of the present and, you know, would sprinkle profound quotes in it, I just, I wasn't feeling it. It just, it, and I tried to think why that was, and, and part of it almost seemed that his manner was maybe a little too casual or a little too, um, I don't know. He was a little too confidently casual, and I didn't actually think he had earned it. And I don't think, I don't think it, it, that the tone and the atmosphere was actually set. I mean, the music did it for me, but for me, he was the kind of odd element out. And the fact that he was also making fun of stuff along the way didn't really work. Like, he starts out by making fun of um, Paul McCartney doing the typical music doc thing where he's like, oh, it was, it was amazing, you know, I, I don't know, you know, I was such a special, you know. And he plays that clip twice, and I'm thinking, you know, that's not actually too different than some of the kind of one-liner stuff you're doing um, that's kind of glib here and there. And so it was weird. Like, I saw the elements. I saw how they were supposed to work. I saw the entire audience rise in a standing ovation afterwards. But, yeah, I didn't actually, 
Yeah, no quicker route to alienation for somebody who's not getting it than yeah. not enjoying it than the standing no, ovation surrounding seated. you. I stayed seated. Not as because I was writing something, but you always look like you're a jerk when you're doing that. But what can I say? Oh, and then the documentary itself just felt a little scattershot because a product of having all these different elements somehow was that the documentary itself didn't have to be too deep. I mean, there were major life events that they get into, but they get into it at the very end and it's kind of one long, it's one sentence <laughs> litany of the terrible things that happened to them. And, you know, that's moving and it's tragic. And you think, oh, how did you do that? I don't know. I also had like kind of a general skepticism about the Kronos project because I feel like they nodded to, but underplayed the fact that it's kind of a marketing coup to a large extent that um, they rise to the top in terms, of, I mean, obviously not, sorry, that's wrong. Not to a large extent, but there's a lot of marketing going on and they kind of mention it and, you know, poke fun at it and the 80s are funny, look at their hairdos. But I kept thinking of like, well, do we really also need to shit on like the quartets that still were wearing tuxes? Like they were probably still pretty good, even if they, you know, weren't wearing leather jackets. So I kind of I kind of didn't like that aspe aspect. <laughs> He's defending the, <laughs> the most reactionary. <laughs> well, response. I can't help it though because, but okay, but how lame is it? How like counter reactionary? Those is punks. It? What's what's no. so wrong about the old music? You no, punks. No, no, no. But hold on. It, the, the funny thing is, it wasn't even their idea to wear the leather jackets. It was the photographer who told them to wear that. So it's just it's a very like fabricated image, you know. Um, and I don't know. Something about that is just always. You know, and I always think, like, if it's a quartet I recognize, there's something wrong. Like, it's, it's like, you know, it's, I don't know, it just feels too easy somehow. At the same time, the music was transplendent. So, um, what do I know? Well, I think we got a thumbs up and thumbs down situation. No, no, I'm trying to say, first of all, I repudiate the thumb system. Because <laughs> I'm endorsing the thumb system. Eric, I'm really buying Eric into the thumb system. Eric is just wielding his thumbs. Just do, 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 stabbing do. in the air. Much as the Kronos Quartet played that John Zorn piece where they're using bows, stabbing in the air. Did they do that in your performance? It was the same performance. Well, in fact, I was sitting right in front of them, so I actually leapt out of my seat because I thought exactly. that they were throwing bows at me. I was terrified was one of them would go because I know they're professionals, but they still might have lost one of those bows. <laughs> there are four of them. One in four might have dropped one well, of those all bows. All I know is I saw a work of cinema that involved someone almost throwing a violin bow at my face. Yeah. I'm good. You're good. <laughs> I'm happy. Yeah, it's yeah, it's like the old 3D ads, like in your eye. So yeah, not I'm you know I appreciated it, but it didn't all come together. Well, I, I think we should also be uh, thorough and say that uh, Sam is the performer and the co-writer, mm -hmm. and he's what we see on stage. But Joe Beanie was the collaborator, so it's co-directed um, by Joe Beanie. Do you know, do you know more about what, what he, what he did? I mean, he's an, he's an editor and he's often seems to be an editor who's called on to things to kind of make sense of a very, well, he's, he's, he's Werner Herzog's longtime yeah. collaborator. <clears throat> um, example. and, uh, yeah, I think this is something that they were working on together for a while, okay. um, constructing yeah. together in terms of, um, I don't know the story about how that came about or why, yeah. But my understanding is that it's that 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 aspect of it was a the film aspect was a collaboration between yeah. the two of them. I don't know, and he talks about being an archivist and how much fun it is to dive into archives, and I love that too. And I could spend days in libraries, but then I think like, well, what did you do with all that? Like, he shows us a paper here, a telegram here. He makes a joke about an old type of telegram. I don't know. It's just like having your cake and eat it too. Like you did research, but then you're making fun of how hokey the process of research is. Well, I, I mean, know. I think I think I think one thing is I. I, I 
I'm gathering you haven't seen him do a, a performance like this before, because this is um, maybe because this I is this is his tone. Yeah, and the, and and a lot of his pieces are like fully archival pieces. Yeah. So there's something about which which is not me defending. It's actually yeah. just sort of saying that I think maybe for those who are familiar with his work, there's some. Uh, or maybe there is an maybe there is an assumption that some people are going to be familiar with his work, which is kind of what I was saying about it being almost like a career summation for him. Yeah. Is that I think that there is, um, yeah, there is elements there that yeah I don't think they're in terms of the archival aspect. I think he's he's alluding to his being interested in that without making it about the archive, you know, or the archival yeah. work and 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 the, the tone as well. Um, I can see having not seen one of these pieces being a little bit off finding his approach off-putting because it's a very specific thing yeah. and you know and i and i've been i'm not entirely on board all the time with that delivery yeah. but this is kind of what he does yeah. you know no i mean um, it's a it's his shtick um <laughs> we all gotta have a shtick we all gotta have a shtick what's your shtick nick my shtick i think i'm doing it um <laughs> The Autograph Collection Indie Film Project celebrates the synergy between independent film and Autograph Collection hotels. This dynamic cultural program is anchored by three key programs, Screenwriters in Residency, free indie films streamed at hotels throughout the U.S., and a portfolio of beautiful hotels in key film festival destinations. Learn more by visiting autographhotels.com. Autograph Hotels, exactly like nothing else. So, April. What did you see that you liked in the past three days? A few things. Keeping in with the theme of uh, past and present coming together, I would say the tale from Jennifer Fox is a really excellent example of a documentarian who turns to narrative uh, features and really knocks it out of the park. Mm. Utilizes all of the skills that she you know, had and developed and honed over these years as a documentarian and weaves them really interestingly into the narrative because it's semi-autobiographical and it's the story um, ostensibly of her character Jennifer Fox who one day gets a call from her mother that there are these letters and things that she had found um, basically that reveal that she had been sexually abused as a child um, Jennifer Fox, the character, uh, never saw herself as a victim. So she had rewritten her memories to be that she was in a consensual relationship with a much older man um, and, con you know, constructed this whole uh, reality around that. Um, and when these letters come in, it kind of uh, opens up another door in her memory that she's unsure of. And so she kind of goes on this little uh, trip down memory lane, tracking down people from this um, summer that, that she spent with these people um, on a horse farm. Do they call them farms? I'm, I'm a city farm? girl. Is a, far, is a horse farm? I'm a city farm? girl, too. I think they're horse farms. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we can just call it a horse place. A horse place. Stables? <laughs> Stables. Stables. So uh, she goes and tracks down all these people that she knew when she was um, like 12, 13, just very young. And we get to see uh, a lot of the story that's in the past, you know, flashbacks. But the flashbacks are so artfully done because uh, she'll have one scene playing uh, the way that she thinks that it is. And then once she learns new information, she has to go and rewrite that scene because 
that's not the way it actually was. So then we see that scene again with that new information intact. Um, you know, maybe in one scene, she imagines that there's um, a fire burning in the fireplace and, you know, this guy who's going to take advantage of her is like serving her food or something. But then something clicks and she remembers, oh, the fire wasn't lit. He said something about getting her a blanket. So then she has to go back. We, we rewind very quickly and then start the scene over again. And um, the longer that the film goes on, the more this happens uh, because um, her memories are racing. So it kind of starts out um, as maybe more of a typical drama in the beginning. And then by the end, you're kind of in, enmeshed in, in both pre- uh, past and present. Mm. And she comes to terms with what happened to her and that, that she was a victim. I mean, that's it's not really a spoiler. It's part of mm-hmm. the thing. I'm letting people yeah, yeah. know. Um, but it's really well edited, too. I, I, there's, I know editing is supposed to be invisible, but I love seeing a film that is just so well edited. Mm. You can move back and forth from time, and it still feels right. And there's even moments where she's actually... Um, her character uh, of Jennifer Fox um, creates these scenes in the past where she's interrogating... Um, characters as she would as a a documentarian Mm. so if she were making a documentary and trying to dig in and and get to the truth of what really happened um, you know she has them sitting on a couch asking them questions Um, so she imagines all of this uh, within the story and I I I loved it it was one of the most like uh, honest um, accurate depictions of um, sexual abuse for children I've ever seen I'm seeing it later in the week and I'm just sort of curious you've do you know her documentaries? Have you seen? I'm those? not. A, no, I'm not even familiar. But I, I looked them up after. I'm just curious how they, how they, how they, the way that if if they're in conversation at all in terms of that work and this work. I, you know, I I went and I looked and it. Um, I feel like there's a possibility that they could. I love that in the scene. You know, she is a documentary artist. You know, mm-hmm. in this movie, mm-hmm. and um, played she, by played by Laura Dern. Yes, played by Laura Dern, uh, who's uh, you know continuing this lovely hot streak that she has. She's even teaching as a professor, like uh, teaching interviewing techniques mm-hmm. um, to documentary film students. Mm-hmm. And so we get to see um, all of that uh, come to pass on the screen. And then she's a little bit out in the wild, um, becoming a chameleon, trying to um, record things for her own documentaries. And that's where I was thinking that maybe the footage possibly could have been recycled from something she had done in a documentary previously. Okay. okay. Formally, it's it's a lot of setup. Yeah. Um, there's one big reveal of memory where I think that's in the first 40 where she um, uh, she imagines herself looking older in her memory, you know? Like she has more agency, but then her mother shows her a picture of what she actually looked like when she was like 12, 13, and she's like, oh my God, I was a child. And then she had to rewrite her memory and things got grosser. Um, mm. Like instantly... Right went in a very different direction after that is when um, I think the narrative really picked up. Right. Okay. So that's the tale. What else? Well, the other film that I saw today was the Matangi Maya MIA film, Ah. uh, which is a film about English, Sri Lankan musician, pop star MIA. Um, And it's okay. It's okay. (laughs) Um, in, In fact, I mean, it's a sort of film that I wouldn't prioritize here. Um, but I had heard that it's not a standard music doc, which is what you want to hear if you're going to seek something like this out, uh, unless it's your beat to, 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 to 
see something like this. And, and I think that's true, but I also don't know that it's entirely successful. I mean, what's unique about it and good about it is that it's um, made by a, a, a colleague of hers, somebody she went to art school with um, in 1995. They met, they met in 1995, Stephen Loveridge. So there's footage from way back of the two of them because they were both filmmakers. They were both looking to be documentary filmmakers. The first six or so years where there's footage here, Maya is looking to be a documentary filmmaker. It's not until the early aughts that she starts making music. Um, and so there's a lot of first-person documentary footage of Maya filming herself and filming her family and going to Sri Lanka. So a lot of the really best footage comes from this period. But then also... They're clearly very close, and so Stephen's also shooting her, and there's a, so that various points in history, there's this kind of ongoing project, uh, whether or not it was conceived of as a project, and I don't think that it was, but at some point it became a project where Stephen Loveridge was going to tell her story, tell Maya's story. Um, so I, it's, it's, it's roughly chronological, except we keep going back to this trip in 2001, where she went back to Sri Lanka for the first time for two months. And it's significant. And the things that she's working through are significant. Um, there's just a little bit of confusion in terms of, and I shouldn't say confusion, but I'm a little confused as to sort of kind of what the thesis of the film is. Because we've got, you know, you've got the, um, her burgeoning political career or as a spokeswoman, or, 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 or I should say, you know, uh, uh, you know, activist, I should say. Um, uh, alongside her pop career and the tensions involved with that, and we get a lot of candid footage from that period of time. But you know, but there's also interspersing a lot of music video footage in there, and it's just kind of not quite sure that it is f found its thesis. Um, and because we're at Sundance and these things happen, and it's worth talking about in the setting, the Q and A was fascinating because MIA was there and she was sort of true to form where she basically was critiquing the movie that she's the subject of to her friend and collaborator who she gave you know permission to make a movie about her so it was actually incredibly awkward because oh, the film and they, there was one microphone and they kept stealing the microphone away from each other and so she was kind of saying things that you don't say at the Q&A of somebody's like Sundance premiere or second screening saying what she would have changed and what she would want different which is honest and interesting and made for a nice act thing of the, but it was also kind of mortifying for the filmmaker who wound up having his say and you know established that she didn't she was clearly not comfortable with the film that's about her she would have liked it to have been more about politics and more about these other things so it's fair they each have a fair point of view but it was a fascinating end to the evening which also in a way confirmed my thoughts is that I'm not sure it, it found a solution between those two possibilities for what it could be. So you saw it enacted after it sort of enacted, yes. It's <laughs> interesting. So April, you saw a film just today that I guess you had been looking forward to somewhat. Uh, yeah, Desiree Akavan's um, The Miseducation of Cameron Post. It's a uh, an adaptation of a very popular, I think, 2011 uh, novel from Emily Danforth. Um, and it's about a, a young girl uh, who's kind of in an evangelical uh, Christian church who is caught having sex on her prom night with a girl and then sent to a gay conversion therapy camp. Um, and 
Uh, it is the uh, the second gay conversion therapy camp movie that I can think of <laughs> after But I'm a Cheerleader, uh-huh. obviously, uh, from 1999 or I think 2000 was probably the theatrical release. Um, and it's really interesting looking at that film, um, at Desiree's film in light of the camp that was happening in 99 with gay conversion therapy and film because uh, I think there was maybe in the 90s a positive thing where they're like, look at this, it's so ridiculous, this can't last any longer. Fast forward (laughs) nearly 20 years and it turns out it's uh, like a a really terrible, yeah, it's an industry, it's a terrible reality and the vice president is pushing it as a viable means to um, subject your children to torture. So this uh, film, it does have humor in it I think um, a lot of that hits because of a young actor um, named Forrest Goodluck. He is a Native American actor, I think, from New York, and he is so good at deadpan. He mm-hmm. delivers a lot of really uh, beautiful, perfect lines in this film. Um, uh, but it is a grittier version. It is a more honest version, I think, of, of what would happen at a gay conversion therapy camp, um, which is a lot of brainwashing. I did appreciate that the uh, the people who run the camp, like the therapists, the psychologists, they aren't depicted as pure evil. They are, in fact, looked at very empathetically, even if they are very, very wrong. Mm. Um, and in fact, some of the some of the humor comes from just how out of their league they really are. They don't know what's happening. I think it was successful. I don't think it's I don't think it's the best. You know, there's there's apparently um, a lot more to talk about with this topic um you could go even darker um it seemed to be a little bit halfway at points but um i do appreciate a that it was made b that it it, the queer sex actually looked like queer sex Mm. didn't look like um uh, straight people who were kind of flopping around (laughs) on each other (laughs) a la like blue is the warmest color where it was just like what is uh. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so um, there was a, a certain kind of authenticity and accuracy to it that I, I greatly appreciated. Oh, and uh, Chloe uh, Grace Moretz uh, is the lead. Um, and she actually, I think she does quite well in this um, as a dramatic actor. Um, but she's also kind of flat. I thought so, too. That was um, kind of a problem. For you me. know, like maybe doesn't know exactly um, in some scenes how to, how to be dramatic without being blank faced. Um, mm. um, but I like seeing her kind of stretch her wings. Sasha Lane is the, um, the other supporting actress, um, who was in American Honey and really had such a fantastic role in that yeah. and got relegated to, um, not too much here. Um, all, all three of them though, I think that if they, more time had been spent on building up their relationship and their camaraderie, I think it, I think it could have been a good dynamic with the three. Yeah. I, kind of, I, 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 I agree. I kind of thought that Sasha Lane's character should have been the protagonist. And there's a lot of promise to her character. I mean, she's first you see her as a kind of sarcastic and seductive and just figure. Um, and then it doesn't really grow too much beyond that. Um, yeah. That's always the danger of adapting a novel over mm-hmm. a short story, though, because mm-hmm. you can't really get the um, the full arc of what these characters are, what they mean to the story and... And, and keep all of that intact and still have a, a whole movie, you know? Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's almost like in a novel you have a big arc for that character, and then in a film you're picking points 
along the arc where there's kind of line segments between those dots instead of an actual arc. And hopefully people can maybe fill in the blanks, but you might not have picked the right dots. Right, right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's your, 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 (laughs) I feel like, I feel like it's gotta be like Howard Stern here. We have to mention the fact that we are in a lobby at the moment and a gentleman ran by with bare feet and a bathing suit. Yeah. That's worth mentioning. Also, earlier, was I hallucinating or did one of the Kronos Quartet walk <laughs> yes, by? Yes, one of the Kronos Quartet walked by. Thankfully, we weren't talking about how illegitimate their st- their style yeah, was in the 80s. Kind of, yeah. So, but I want to know also, you, you pulled a stealthy move here. I didn't even know you saw this film. You just started commenting. I, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't uh, reveal that you had seen the film until oh. after April... St- had a whole spiel. Well, it was more about um, what April thought about the film <laughs> than what I thought about it. Saying. it. Well, a little, it, it was a little shocking. Well, we we didn't make a hit list. Also, I have no, you know, my memory is shot by this point, so I couldn't tell you what I. <laughs> like halfway through, you were like, "Oh, I saw this film." <laughs> that's right. I saw that picture. <laughs> that's right. It's like I think I saw that on cable once. Yeah. What? Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah. There's probably other things I saw today. I think. Um, with, with some basic hypnosis, we could probably elicit these titles, <laughs> and I can talk about them. But that's beyond, I think. The, I the think purview. the folks back home know from basic hypnosis because that's what's happened over the course of this podcast. <laughs> it is true. They have nodded off. We can they, we can make them do anything we want them to. <laughs> Quit smoking. Call your mother. <laughs> um, well, I guess that sort of brings us. To the end, were there any vital general things you wanted to mention? Uh, I guess it has to be said, I don't want to, I mean, there have been very intelligent things said here about the movies that we've seen. But in general, I don't think we should sugarcoat the fact that it is a pretty bad year at Sundance. Oh, I'm not going to make any statement like that. I don't, don't, A, if we're not going to like, I don't know. A, I (laughs) Wait, you mean I can't just drop that I think that's a ludicrous thing to say. (laughs) Well. We've We've seen, there's no way that. Any of us have seen more than like a quarter to a third of the films. I feel like I haven't seen, I've I've been waiting in line for movies that I didn't get into about like three out of ten times. Okay. And those are movies that I've been looking forward to for a while. And I'll be picking up on stuff over the next couple of days that other people have been talking about. So, right, I mean, we'll catch up to things. My personal experience has been fairly, fairly mixed, I would say. Sure. No, that's what that. Well, this yeah. is worth saying. But uh, and that's come across in terms of like what you've seen day to day as we've talked. Yeah, but also just anecdotally, I keep hearing. I have been coming to Sundance X number of years. It is the second worst, third worst, worst of those years. I've heard that from someone who came for twenty five years, yeah. someone who came for ten years, someone who came for fifteen years. I just always distrust I those statements because I don't I know do. what that's based on and I don't but know late which films <laughs> it's late Monday. There are a lot of films that have come out. I still haven't even know. seen Hereditary. And I haven't seen Hereditary. And an Assassination Nation uh, is piercing. I haven't seen yeah, well, any of films those. are still premiering and like true. people are talking about them. Yeah. I'm just gonna protest that entire line of no, believe me, I'm not usually a person who says that. I would never do this ordinarily. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's just how I'm feeling at the moment. But who knows? Maybe the entire course of my festival will be turned around over the next 24 hours, which is what it would have to be. Oh, God. I hope so. Um, but, uh, April, you, you bring up a good point that we actually haven't talked about enough genre films, I think, here. Uh-huh. Um, so we can make that a personal mission um, t- um, tomorrow. <laughs> 
and unless there was a genre film you saw because we actually have three people here now so i think we can have a few more minutes if we needed to if there was anything else but but you haven't those are the movies you wanted to see but haven't seen but you saw mandy right mandy was one where i as i was watching it did not know if i hated it or if i thought it was the best movie ever made (laughs) which is one of those um really rare experiences at the cinema but i'm still thinking about it even if it like really tried my patience for about 80 minutes um, before it got into some very interesting action but the visuals the aesthetic of it it's all pulled from these old um 1980s kind of metal fantasy um covers you know do you guys remember all the metal fantasy record Mm -hmm. covers and also the books all the fantasy books just like you know swords you know serpents and letters in the shape of swords yes oh god so many of those um and uh and that visual style is is so interesting and they definitely use a lot of um old video techniques in it as well so you've got a lot of weird dissolves and a lot of um double exposure things that are happening and it's pretty psychedelic um throughout there's not like a single scene that's just lit with light there's just there's color gels on everything all the time there's strobes you're Never quite sure where you are, but it's pretty. Um, And also really frightening. Um, And then Nicolas Cage goes berserk, which is what we're all waiting for, honestly. Like, that's... I feel obliged to point out that he has gone berserk before. What? So so what do you have to say to the person who has seen Nicolas Cage gone berserk before? What is different about this berserk? Well, considering that I love Nicolas Cage going berserk and Mom and Dad, which actually just came out like last week, um, and I think is an excellent movie from the Crank dudes, um, it, this time it is a kind of a slow burn going crazy. So it's not just going insane and like ripping things apart. It's a really kind of slow burn watching him come to these decisions, you know. Uh, there's like a single scene where he's in a bathroom and uh, the camera's just on him like weeping and then laughing and then weeping again and then falling over and then um, suturing a stab wound and then crying and then drinking vodka and then putting vodka on the stab wound and falling all over the bathroom at the same time, like tracking blood. So it's just, um, it's it's avant-garde theater in a weird way. <laughs> it's so strange. Yeah. Um, and there's a chainsaw uh, battle. Um, That's good. <laughs> Tell me more. I'm almost he, there. Tell me more. He, uh, he makes his own um, uh, battle axe, his own swords. Like he, you know, what, did, what is it? Smelting? What are they? How do you make a... <laughs> it's I, been so many years since <laughs> I smelt today. <laughs> I mean, like, he crafts his own swords to, like, kill beasts and demons that are riding around on, like, dirt bikes. And it's, it's fascinating. Really fascinating. Well, I, I probably won't be able to see that again. I guess I've, I guess I should just stop living <laughs> at this point. Um, yeah, all I had seen... You can seen start smelting, though. Start, stop living, start smelting. All I had seen was the first feature by the director, Panos Kosmatos, who is the son of a Greek director of some renown and based on that I was a little um, wary of this but it sounds like he's gotten a sense of humor that maybe that first feature didn't really 
have as much to me. Well, no, no, no. The first 80 minutes did not have a sense of humor, and that oh, okay. was really hard. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh. But then slowly that, that humor does build, and, huh. and it, it becomes more self-aware. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I think that probably brings us to the end <laughs> of uh, this, this day's podcast. So we'll be back tomorrow here at Sundance, and thank you for listening from all of us. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. The Film Comment Podcast from Sundance is sponsored by Autograph Collection Hotels. The Autograph Collection Indie Film Project supports independent film and celebrates the power of storytelling to inspire and connect people and places by leaving a lasting imprint. Autograph Collection Hotels, exactly like nothing else, 